Welcome to this, the first and possibly only episode in a new podcast called Point of Failure, Engineering Disasters Explored. I am Co, and in this podcast I aim to take an impartial deep dive into the events, effects and causes of accidents, looking to identify the points of failure in the chain of events that lead to a tragic end. I should state that I am not an expert in any of the fields that I am going to discuss, nor do I have any particular experience or training in the subjects that will be covered. I am simply a person with a somewhat unhealthy interest in disasters and accident reports. Where possible, I will aim to bring on guests who are more knowledgeable about certain aspects surrounding the incident being discussed. If you enjoy this podcast, please let me know by leaving a rating and review. Feedback can be sent to pointoffailurepod at gmail.com, and if you have a suggestion for an episode or any improvements that could be made, I would be more than happy to hear them. And so, with that out of the way, we might as well get started. Fire and explosion aboard the chemical tanker Stolt Groenland at the port of Olsen, Republic of Korea, on the 28th of September 2019. Zero fatalities, 17 injured. Let us first take a look at the ship and crew involved in the incident. The Stolt Groenland is the third of six 43,000 deadweight ton double-hulled chemical product tankers ordered by Stolt Tankers, the world's largest operator of such vessels. STX Norway Floro laid the keel for the ship in July 2008 at their Okean shipyard in Mykolaiv on the southern coast of Ukraine, and it was completed by December 2009. Registered in the Cayman Islands, the tanker measured 182.72 metres feet in length and 32.24 metres feet in breadth, with a nominal draft of 11.88 or 38.9 feet. The crew complement of the ship was normally 25, 10 officers and 15 ratings, all of whom held the appropriate training and certification for their positions. The ship's captain, or master as the position is properly known, had been with the company since 1999 and had been promoted to master in 2009. He had served in this position on the Stock Groenland since 2016, having previously served in the same role on her sister ships. The chief officer, also known as the chief mate or first officer, changed on arrival in Olsen. It was not uncommon for members of a ship's crew to be rotated on and off the ship due to the nature of the work and the contracts under which individual crew members operate. The officer in charge during the discharge operations had been with the company since 2008 and had been promoted to his current position in 2016. He had served aboard the Stolt Groenland in this role on four previous occasions, and had also served on the vessel's sister ships. The chief officer in charge during loading and transit between ports had joined the company in 2011, having started his career as a cadet in 2006, and was eventually promoted to chief officer in 2017. He had also served on the Stolt Groenland three times previously, usually with the same master and crew. The vessel was equipped with a seven-cylinder marine diesel engine capable of producing 11,620 kilowatts connected to a single controllable pitch propeller. This gave a maximum speed of 16.3 knots, although a more typical speed would be about 15 knots. Onboard heating for the cargo compartments was provided via three auxiliary boilers. Two of these were oil or gas-fired modular boilers, with the third being an exhaust gas economizer, designed to utilize the thermal energy that would otherwise be lost in the engine exhaust gases. Onboard electrical power was provided by a 1,100 kilowatt generator connected to the shaft between the main engine and the propeller, and two 1,540 kilowatt diesel generators. Emergency power was supplied by a 230 kilowatt diesel engine coupled to a 288 kilovolt amp generator. As for stowage, the Stolt Groenland could carry up to 2,200 cubic metres of heavy fuel oil for the engines and 16,468.9 cubic metres of ballast to improve stability. Up to 45,350 cubic metres of cargo could be carried in 39 separate sealed tanks. These tanks were arranged in such a way that there were 13 rows along the length of the vessel, starting with row 1 at the bow and row 13 ending just in front of the accommodation block. 
Each row was separated into port, centre and starboard tanks and were built with corrugated walls for additional structural integrity. The vessel had two cofferdams separating rows 3 and 4 and 11 and 12. These are structures commonly used on board ships to prevent the mixing of different fluids should an individual tank become damaged or start to leak, and to limit or prevent the contents of that tank from reaching the operational areas of the ship. The individual cargo tanks aboard the Salt Cromeland varied considerably in size, ranging from the largest tanks in rows 6, 9 and 13 to the smallest tanks in rows 4 and 11. This arrangement meant that the ship could more efficiently carry varied cargoes with minimal wasted space in the tanks. This particular arrangement of tanks means that the Stolt Groenland is considered a parcel tanker. While there is no precise definition for such a ship, it is generally accepted that it is an ocean vessel designed with multiple compartments, capable of carrying multiple different liquid chemical cargoes and to prevent them from mixing. Due to the wide variety of chemicals that a parcel tanker may be asked to carry, it is important to consider in its construction the material from which the tanks will be made. Stainless steel is generally considered to be the best option for such tanks due to its excellent chemical and mechanical resistance, especially if it is further treated to increase its chemical resistance. However, not all grades of stainless steel are suitable for use in marine environments and the cost may be prohibitive in some instances. Therefore, an alternative to this is to construct the tank from a cheaper material, such as mild steel, and then apply a protective coating to the tank. This does have a number of disadvantages, however. There are, broadly speaking, two different types of coating that may be used, organic and inorganic, each with its own advantages and disadvantages. Inorganic coatings are typically composed of some form of silicate, usually zinc-based, these are extremely resistant to aromatic hydrocarbons, such as benzene and toluene, but they are not suited to the transport of vegetable oils, animal fats, acidic or alkaline cargoes, which includes seawater. Organic coatings, on the other hand, are typically some form of epoxy, and are generally resistant to both acidic and alkaline products, animal fats, vegetable oils, and molasses. However, they are much less suitable for use with aromatic cargoes, such as benzene, toluene, or alcohols, and their tendency to absorb a significant amount of a product means that contamination of a cargo is more likely. Tanks 1 to 3 and 12 and 13 were constructed of mild steel with an inorganic zinc-based coating. Tanks 4 to 11 were all constructed of solid stainless steel. These tanks were also equipped with a heating system. This was manually operated via a series of valves on the deck and functioned by circulating hot water from the ship's auxiliary boilers through coils within each tank. Each tank's heating could be controlled individually, or in the case of certain cargoes, physically blanked off to prevent accidental operation. The second vessel we must consider in today's episode is the Bow Dalian, a 9,118-deadweight-ton Singapore-registered chemical tanker constructed in 2012 and operated by Odfiel. The ship measures 119.62 metres feet in length, with a breadth of 18.6 metres, 61.02 feet, and a maximum draft of 7.8 metres, or 25.59 feet, and is fitted with 14 stainless steel cargo tanks arranged port and starboard along the vessel. The city of Olsen is located in the southeast of the Republic of Korea, some 307 kilometres, or 191 miles, from the capital of Seoul. As of the last census carried out at the end of 2020, it is home to a little over 1.1 million inhabitants, making it the 8th largest city in South Korea. The city started as a relatively small fishing port and market on the Taewa River. This changed, however, in 1962 when it was designated as a free port, and large swathes of the surrounding area were designated for industrial development. Over the following decades, the port grew substantially, with the construction of assorted industrial plants, factories and heavy industries, and it is now widely regarded as the industrial powerhouse of South Korea. This claim is well-founded, as the city is home to both the world's largest car manufacturing plant and shipyard, as well as the third largest oil refinery. In the 1990s, planning started for a bridge to directly link the east and west industrial districts of the city, which was separated by the River Tewa. Shortening the route between them and the reducing the need for vehicles to drive into the city to cross on bridges further up the river. 
construction of the 2.9 kilometer or 1.8 mile long steel and reinforced concrete suspension bridge did not start however until 2010 and took five years to complete. Opening on the 1st of June 2015, the Olsen Bridge carried four lanes of traffic and boasted the fourth largest single span at 1,150 metres, 1,258 yards, of any bridge of its type in the world at that time. Between the 2nd and 17th of August 2019, the Stolt Gremlin loaded 20 different chemicals from a number of terminals in Texas, United States, for shipment to ports in the Far East. Part of this was a cargo of 5,245 tonnes of styrene monomer that had been loaded into three tanks, six port, six centre and nine starboard, between the 7th and 8th of August. Six tanks of chemicals that required heating above ambient temperatures were also loaded. Two tanks were to be maintained at between 40 and 45 degrees Celsius, 104 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit, while the remaining four tanks had to be kept at between 45 and 50 degrees Celsius, 113 to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. The last chemical to be loaded before departure occupied these four tanks, and was at 61 degrees Celsius, 142 degrees Fahrenheit, when it was pumped aboard. Given that styrene is a heat-sensitive chemical, the loading plan specifically prohibited its loading adjacent to heated cargoes in order to prevent heat transfer. As such, every tank of styrene was separated by at least one intermediate tank. However, six centre was loaded diagonally opposite to a heated cargo in seven starboard. While this was not prohibited, it was contrary to guidance in the Safe Handling Guide for Styrene Monomer. On the 17th of August, with all chemicals loaded aboard, the Stolt Groenland departed en route to Japan, where it would discharge the first of its cargoes. Arriving in Kobe, Japan, just over a month later, the ship transferred three tanks and partially offloaded a fourth to barges between the 22nd and 24th of September, before departing again for Ulsan, South Korea. On the 26th and 27th of September, six tanks were discharged at the Otfjell terminal. At this same time, the chief officer who had been responsible for the cargo up until this point in the voyage was relieved by his replacement and departed the ship at around 1500 local time on the 26th. On the afternoon of the 27th, the Stolt Groenland was moved from its mooring at the Odfjell Terminal to Yompo Key, berth 3, which was below the recently constructed Ulsan Bridge. It is of note that this key is not an authorised berth for the handling of dangerous cargoes. However, permission was given by the Port Authority to use it for ship-to-ship -ship transfers. During the evening of the 27th, another tanker, the Stolt Voyager, was brought alongside and two tanks were discharged in a direct ship-to-ship -ship transfer. After transfer operations were completed, the Stolt Voyager was moored directly ahead of the Stolt Groenland at the quay. At around 0600 on the 28th of September, the Baudalian was secured alongside the Stolt Groenland in preparation for another ship-to-ship -ship transfer and purging of the Baudalian's tanks with nitrogen was started in preparation for this. At 10.43, a vapour release was observed from the PV valve in the nine starboard cargo tank aboard the Stolp Groenland. At approximately 10.45, an alarm mounted to the front of the accommodation block sounded, indicating that the level within the tank had reached 95% of its maximum capacity. This alarm was observed by a crew member stationed on the central gangway of the tanker who immediately notified the third officer via handheld radio who was the on-watch deck officer at the time. The third officer, upon receiving this message, immediately headed to the cargo control room, which was unmanned at that time, in order to investigate. The radio message to the third officer was also heard by the chief officer who also headed to the cargo control room. Shortly after reaching the cargo control room, it is unknown exactly how long afterwards, the high-level alarm activated, indicating that the level in 9 starboard had reached 98%. This alarm was once again reported by the crewman on the gangway watch via the handheld radio. Both the third and chief officers observed that the pressure within the 9 starboard cargo tank was at 1,340 millibar, 
or 19.44 psi, and rapidly climbed to 2000 millibar, or 29.01 psi. At 10.50, two explosions in rapid succession rocked the Stolt Groenland. Both had occurred around the cargo manifold, with the second one igniting a cloud of flammable styrene vapour that had been released. The fireball this produced was enormous. To give you an idea of the scale of this explosion, the fireball produced was larger than the pylons for the bridge, which stood at 203 metres, 666 feet, and only narrowly missed engulfing the Olsen Bridge and the vehicles using it at the time. These explosions had also resulted in a deck fire aboard, fuelled by vapours venting from the nine starboard and nine central PV valves. The force of the explosions aboard the Stolt Groenland was enough to blow the crewman standing on the centre gangway over the starboard railing of the ship. Initially, he was able to hold on to the railing, but the intensity of the fire on board forced him to let go and drop into the water. He landed in the water between the quay and the vessel, an extremely dangerous place to be, due to the high risk of being crushed. Fortunately, he was able to climb out of the water and to the relative safety of the quay, using a nearby fender as a makeshift ladder. Aboard the Stolt Groenland, the chief officer activated the fire alarm, and the crew reported to their fire stations. Between them, the chief and third officers activated the deck foam monitor system, and directed both the port and starboard monitors towards the cargo manifold. A monitor is sometimes referred to as a water cannon, and is typically a fixed turret designed to disperse a large quantity of water or foam at a fire. They are typically found in fixed installations where there is a significant risk of fire, such as oil refineries and chemical plants. Portable versions are also available and are sometimes used by fire brigades. Realising the danger to the crew from the size and intensity of the fire and the remaining cargoes in the tanks, the chief officer gave the order to abandon the ship shortly after activating the fire suppression system. All remaining crew on board abandoned the ship using the freefall lifeboat. However, the Stolt Groenland was not alone. Recall that the bow Dalian was tied up alongside, waiting to take on cargo when the explosions occurred. In response to having the ship alongside explode and then catch fire, the chief officer of the bow Dalian sounded his ship's emergency alarm and called all crew to muster stations. While his crew were assembling, he and another crew member activated their own fire suppression systems and directed the monitors towards the Stolt Groenland cargo manifolds in order to assist in suppressing the fire. By the time this was complete, the crew was able to abandon ship via a rope ladder onto a Korean Coast Guard vessel that had come alongside to assist. By 11.01, the first of the onshore fire brigade had arrived to begin fighting the fire, joined shortly afterwards by firefighting tugs and launches from the Coast Guard, who towed the bow daily and clear of the Stolt Groenland. Stolt, the owner of the tanker, were notified of the explosions and fire by one of their safety inspectors aboard the Stolt Voyager moored ahead of the Stolt Groenland. Stolt immediately activated its emergency response team, ERT, and were able to establish via telephone and WhatsApp messenger that the crew of the Stolt Groenland were safe. At 15.28, the ERT were informed of an additional explosion towards the rear of the tanker near to the accommodation block, but by 16.12 it was notified that although smoke was still present, there were no visible flames. Some news reports, however, state that the fire was not fully extinguished until 11am on the 29th. An urgent email was also sent by the EMT to all company tanker vessels to check on styrene monocargoes that were currently being carried. In total, the fire required the efforts of 726 emergency responders and 117 firefighting appliances to bring under control. A total of two crew members and 15 of these emergency responders experienced injuries that required hospital treatment or observation. Now that we know what happened on this day, let us look at the cargo involved. Styrene monomer is one of the most fundamental components in the modern plastics industry, with around 35 million tonnes of it produced every year, as of 2018, 
Styrene was originally discovered in 1839 and was named after the Styrax resin from which it was isolated. Styrax resin was the sap extracted from trees in the liquid amber genus, such as the American sweetgum tree. These days, however, it is produced from petroleum and natural gas byproducts and is a derivative of benzene. Styrene is typically a clear, oily liquid, slightly less dense than water, and with a sweet, almost floral scent that is detectable even at concentrations as low as 0.1 parts per million. It has a freezing point of minus 31 degrees Celsius, minus 24 Fahrenheit, and a boiling point of 145 degrees Celsius, or 293 degrees Fahrenheit. This means that it is liquid under ambient conditions with a flash point of 32 degrees Celsius or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. The Encyclopaedia Britannica defines the flash point as the lowest temperature at which a liquid will form a vapour at its surface that will briefly ignite on exposure to an open flame. For reference, petrol, gasoline, has a flash point of minus 43 degrees Celsius, minus 45 Fahrenheit, Pure ethanols is 13 degrees Celsius, 55 degrees Fahrenheit, and diesel would be 38 degrees Celsius or 100 Fahrenheit. Styrene vapours, when they are produced, are heavier than air and can be explosive in normal atmosphere at concentrations between 1.1 and 6.6% by volume. At temperatures in excess of 490 degrees Celsius, 914 degrees Fahrenheit, Styrene will experience auto-ignition, which is the point at which it will spontaneously ignite without an external spark or flame. Exposure to styrene monomer can result in severe irritation of the eyes and mucous membranes, and may also result in gastrointestinal problems. Long-term exposure may result in problems with the central nervous system, including, but not limited, to nerve damage, hearing loss, headaches and depression. We have mentioned that styrene is used in the production of plastics, but to understand exactly what happened in this incident, we will have to look a bit deeper at exactly how this is achieved. Monomers, such as styrene, are small molecules that are capable of bonding with other monomers to form a more complex chain or three-dimensional structure. These more complex structures are referred to as polymers, and the process by which they are formed is known as polymerization. The most common use for styrene is in the production of polystyrene, which accounts for over 60% of all styrene used. Polystyrene is one of the most widely used plastics and can be manufactured in a variety of forms to fulfil a wide range of uses. When moulded, it can be used to produce CD cases, plastic models, test tubes, disposable cutlery and many other items. Perhaps the most recognisable use of polystyrene to most people would be expanded polystyrene, which is commonly used in food containers, sheet insulation and packaging materials. When styrene undergoes polymerization with other monomers, it produces a wide range of polymers. Production of acrylonitrile butadiene styrene, ABS, and styrene acrylonitrile resins, SAN, accounts for around 16% of overall styrene usage. ABS is a highly adaptable and widely used polymer, commonly found in car panels, Lego bricks, pipes, and the keys on your keyboard. SAN is widely used in a range of consumer goods, such as water bottles, food containers, and packaging materials. Approximately 6% of styrene is used in the production of styrene butadiene rubber, which is used in car tyres, industrial belts and hoses, toys, sponges, and even floor tiles and another 6% goes towards producing unsaturated polyester resin, commonly used in composite materials such as fiberglass. Polymerization is an exothermic reaction, emitting heat, which in turn will raise the overall temperature of the monomer. Given that the rate of polymerization is itself temperature-dependent, it is essential to ensure that the temperature, and therefore the reaction rate, remains low, not only to ensure that the cargo remains usable, but also to prevent a thermal runaway reaction. To help prevent this from occurring, a polymerization inhibitor is used when storing or transporting monomers. An inhibitor is a chemical that prevents the autopolymerization reaction from occurring within a monomer. 
In the case of the Stolk Groenland, the inhibitor chosen was 4-tert-butyl-catechol, TBC. TBC is normally a white to slightly pale yellow or pale red powder or crystal with a melting point of 58 degrees Celsius, or 136 degrees Fahrenheit. When used as an inhibitor in styrene, it is normally mixed with methanol first to produce a thick and viscous liquid. While I will not go into the mechanics behind the polymerization reaction, or exactly how the inhibitor works to prevent it from occurring, it is important to know that the process of inhibiting the reaction consumes the inhibitor. As such, the level of inhibitor within a monomer cargo will naturally decrease over time. As we have already discussed, the temperature of the monomer is directly related to the reaction rate, and as such, at higher temperatures, the inhibitor will be depleted more rapidly. When an inhibitor is added, a certificate is issued at the same time, outlining the details of the cargo and its inhibitor. Crucially, this lists the target concentration, the date added, the number of days that this will be effective for, and the conditions that must not be exceeded for the certificate to remain accurate. In the case of the Stolt Groenland, the certificate specified that the inhibitor would be considered effective for between 60 and 90 days from the 7th of August 2019 when it was added, but only if the minimum oxygen content of 5% was maintained throughout the voyage, and the temperature of the cargo did not exceed 29.4 degrees Celsius, 85.92 degrees Fahrenheit, the certificate even notes that the cargo inhibitor level should be monitored if these limits are exceeded, with additional inhibitor being added if required. This presents a problem, however. The Stolt Groenland possessed no onboard capability to actually measure the concentration of inhibitor in its cargo. Even if this facility were available to the crew, no additional supplies of inhibitor were carried on board in case they were required. At a temperature of 25 degrees Celsius, 77 degrees Fahrenheit, it would take 11 days for the concentration of TBC to decrease by one part per million. However, at 30 degrees Celsius, or 86 Fahrenheit, just 5 degrees warmer, the time taken decreases to just 7 days. At a temperature of just 40 degrees Celsius, 104 Fahrenheit, it would only take 1.5 days for the concentration to drop by 1 part per million. Below a concentration of 10 parts per million, there is insufficient inhibitor to completely prevent polymerization, and below 4 parts per million, it is completely ineffective, and the polymerization will be unaffected. Given these figures, it is possible to determine, assuming an initial concentration of 17 parts per million, as stated on the inhibitor certificate, that the time it would take to drop to 10 parts per million would be 77 days at 25 degrees Celsius, or 77 Fahrenheit, 49 days at 30 degrees Celsius, 86 Fahrenheit, and just 10 days at 40 degrees Celsius, or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. The shipment of styrene in this case was expected to remain on board for a total of 56 days between its loading at a terminal in Houston, Texas, and its planned discharge at Anping, Taiwan. Even if the maximum transport temperature of 29.4 degrees Celsius, 85.92 Fahrenheit, were not exceeded, the TBC would have been depleted to unsafe concentrations in just over 49 days, a full week before it was due to be discharged. The actual temperatures experienced by the cargo during shipment were significantly higher than this. We have mentioned that vapour was released from a PV valve, but what exactly is a PV valve, and what purpose does it serve? Well, the PV stands for pressure vacuum and these valves are an essential component when working with tanks. Given that all materials have a finite strength, there is an upper limit to the pressure that a given tank can be expected to resist. This limit may be different depending on if the pressure difference is positive or negative, i.e. the tank is pressurised or under vacuum, depending upon the design and construction of the tank. Perhaps the easiest way of visualising this is with a cheap plastic drinks bottle. With the liquid removed, blowing air into the bottle would have a minimal effect on its shape. 
Conversely, sucking air out of the bottle would result in the bottle collapsing in on itself. This is because the design of the bottle is such that it is much better at resisting positive than negative pressure. If the force exerted on a tank as a result of the pressure difference between its interior and exterior exceeds its maximum limit, there is a significant risk of structural failure of the tank. If the internal pressure is greater than the exterior, then, at the moment of failure, the potential energy stored within the tank will be rapidly converted into kinetic energy, propelling pieces of the tank into the surrounding environment. This has been the cause of numerous incidents and fatalities in the past, and in future episodes we will look at some of those incidents. To put the risk posed by pressurised tanks into perspective, a typical scuba tank used in diving is pressurised to about 3,000 pounds per square inch, 206.8 bar. This tank contains roughly the same amount of energy as 300 grams of TNT. In 1998, the failure of such a tank while filling released enough energy to launch one employee 10 feet into a steel railing, launch a second employee who is standing 6 feet away over 20 feet through the air, and throw a nearby customer over a collection of other tanks. One piece of shrapnel produced by the explosion had sufficient energy to punch through a steel railing, ricochet off another full tank, fortunately without rupturing it, and still be able to punch through the front window of the shop, including the commercial-grade anti-burglar bars. The closest employee lost most of their hand in the incident and suffered extensive injuries to his face, while the second employee and customer fortunately only sustained minor injuries. Needless to say, the failure of larger tanks, particularly those containing hazardous or flammable cargoes, is something that should be avoided. As such, they are often fitted with pressure relief valves, designed to open and vent excess pressure to atmosphere if it exceeds a safe limit. Another risk that must be considered is that posed by an excessive negative pressure within the tank. While not as inherently dangerous as an overpressure failure, the implosion of a tank would be both expensive and potentially hazardous to the ship itself, depending upon the design. There is a somewhat famous video that is easily found on YouTube, entitled Railroad Tank Car Vacuum Implosion, that demonstrates very nicely what happens if the pressure within a tank is allowed to drop below the minimum safe limit. Pressure changes within tanks in chemical tankers are expected, particularly during loading and unloading operations where the level of cargo may be changing rapidly. Slight pressure changes may also be observed if there is a change in temperature of the cargo and it expands or contracts within the tank. To ensure that these changes do not pose a risk to the ship, all tanks are equipped with an individual pressure vacuum relief valve. It is actually comprised of two separate valves, one that will open if the pressure inside the tank exceeds a set point, and one that will open if the pressure inside the tank drops below a set point. These are typically mounted quite high up to assist in venting the vapour away from the ship and are equipped with flame screens, wire meshes designed to prevent sparks or flame from entering back into the tank in the event that the vapour ignites. While venting tanks in this manner may be hazardous and result in toxic or flammable vapours being emitted, it is still preferable to the risk of a tank rupturing from an overpressure event, and the valves on chemical tankers are usually designed in such a way that the venting gas is directed at high pressure upwards from the deck, in order so that any wind might carry it away from the ship and its crew. Given the relative size of the PV valve and pipework compared with the tank, however, it will be unsurprising that there is a limit to the volume of gas that can be vented in a given time. During normal loading and unloading operations, it may actually be necessary to decrease the transfer rate in order to allow the pressure to remain within safe limits. In the event of a pressure increase resulting from an uncontrolled situation, the PV valve is only able to compensate for a fixed rate of increase, and as such, the pressure in the tank may continue to rise, albeit more slowly, towards dangerous levels. The PV valves installed on the Stoke Groenland were designed to begin venting to the atmosphere if the pressure in the tank exceeded 206 millibars, about 2.98 psi. So, 
Now that we have looked at the cargo and the safety valves, let us look at what happened in the immediate aftermath of the incident. After the fire had been extinguished, the Cayman Islands, the country of registration for the vessel, requested the Marine Accident Investigation Branch, MAIB, to investigate this incident. The MAIB was assisted on-site by the Korea Maritime Safety Tribunal, KMST. However, due to the toxic atmosphere aboard the Stolk Groenland, the Korean Coast Guard restricted access initially. On the 3rd of October, investigators examined the bow dalian, which had been towed clear relatively early in the incident. It was observed that a significant portion of the ship was spattered with burned residue, a sample of which was taken for analysis. Along with the overalls a crewman had been wearing while on deck when the styrene vapour had been venting from the nine starboard PV valve. On the 7th of October, samples taken from the remaining styrene cargo in the six centre and six port tanks showed inhibitor concentrations of 8 parts per million and 7 parts per million respectively. On the 8th of October, it was deemed safe enough to allow investigators to board the Stolth Groenland although extensive fire damage and the presence of hazardous chemicals restricted them primarily to the main deck, with a second inspection of the vessel taking place on the 12th of November. These inspections confirmed that the heating coils in the nine centre and nine starboard tanks were closed and blanking plates were installed to prevent unintended operation, and that a fire had emanated from the PV valves of the nine starboard and nine centre tanks. The Stolt Groenland had sustained heavy damage in the incident, with extensive fire damage to the interior of the accommodation block and near total destruction of the midship's deckhouse. Inside the accommodation block, the deck separating the technical room and the cargo control room had collapsed, and both rooms were completely destroyed in the fire. Heat and smoke had even managed to enter the bridge, where it resulted in extensive damage to the installed equipment. External damage to the accommodation block was relatively minor, with the exception of the damage to windows, largely resulting from the actions of the firefighters. The manifold area, where cargoes were pumped onto and off the ship, and directed to the correct tanks, had suffered varying degrees of damage from the fire, depending on the intensity at any given spot. Most notable was the damage sustained to the main deck above Tank 9 starboard, where a large hole was found adjacent to the bulkhead separating 9 starboard and 9 centre. The access hatch for 9 starboard was also found to have been blown off, further evidence of a significant overpressure event occurring within the tank. Due to the complete destruction of the cargo control room in the fire, all cargo-related records, both paper and digital, were destroyed, in addition to cargo samples stored within the midship's deckhouse. Cargo and voyage-related records not stored solely within the cargo control room were recoverable, however, such as those available in Vesslink, a program used for data storage and communication both onboard ship and with relevant parties ashore. All vessels exceeding 3,000 gross tons are required to be fitted with a voyage data recorder, VDR, which in principle serves the same function as a black box on an aircraft. It is designed to store data on a wide range of variables for up to 30 days. The VDR on board the Stolt Groenland recorded the levels, volumes, temperatures and liquid density for all cargo tanks on board. The hourly temperature readings for all cargoes were recovered from the VDR for the period between 0001 Zulu on the 30th of August 2019 and 0150 Zulu on the 28th of September 2019. It should be noted that all times recorded by the VDR are in UTC plus zero, referred to as Zulu, rather than the local time, which in this instance is UTC plus nine hours. As such, 0150 Zulu corresponds to 10.50 a.m. local time. For this entire period, the temperatures recorded in all four styrene tanks were in excess of 36 degrees Celsius, 97 Fahrenheit. Tank 9 starboard had recorded a temperature of 37.6 Celsius, 99.68 Fahrenheit, on the 19th of September. 
By the 22nd, this had risen to 39.4 Celsius, or 102.92 degrees Fahrenheit, and 48.9 degrees Celsius, or 120 degrees Fahrenheit, by the 25th. Testing of the samples taken from 6 port and 6 centre after the incident found that the inhibitor concentrations in each tank were 8 and 7 parts per million respectively. Given that the temperature of 9 starboard was between 5 and 6 degrees Celsius, 9 and 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit, higher than either of these tanks, the rate of inhibitor depletion would have been significantly higher. While trace amounts of TBC were detected on a pair of overalls that a crewman had been wearing on the Baudalian's deck during the initial PV venting, it is highly likely that based on the elevated temperatures within the tank, the level of inhibitor was insufficient to prevent polymerization from occurring. It was suggested by the MAIB that the combination of high temperature and low TBC concentration could have led to a state where the styrene became deficient in dissolved oxygen, remembering, of course, that the inhibitor requires oxygen to function, thus resulting in a further increase in the polymerization rate and associated temperature increase. On the 27th of September, the VDR recorded the temperature in 9 starboard as having exceeded 65 degrees Celsius, 149 Fahrenheit, at around 1900 in the evening. This is the critical temperature for an uncontrolled thermal runaway reaction to occur. The temperature within 9 starboard continued to rise until 10.43 on the 28th, when the ongoing reaction raised the pressure within the tank high enough to trip the pressure relief valve. The last temperature recorded by the VDR was 100.8 degrees Celsius, 213.44 Fahrenheit, immediately before the explosion. So, what actually went wrong, and when did it go wrong? There were a number of points of failure that led to the explosion on board the Stolt Gromland. If any of these points had been identified earlier, then actions could have been taken to prevent a dangerous situation from developing. There were systemic failures to fully apply and observe the safe handling guidelines and restrictions that had been developed for the transport of styrene. This started before it was even transferred aboard the Stolt Groenland. Every vessel in the Stolt fleet has an assigned ship operator responsible for cargo allocation and development of loading and unloading programs working out of one of the company's operations centres. The operator for the Stolt Groenland was based in Houston, Texas, with 23 years of experience in the industry. They had worked as a ship operator for Stolt for the previous four years, having completed a six-month on-the-job training programme overseen by an experienced manager. In their role, they used a number of software programmes and databases provided by Stolt to help produce the cargo stowage plans for each voyage. The software in question was capable of alerting the user if any aspect of the plan may represent a potential problem with regard to issues such as incompatible tank material, previous cargo restrictions to prevent the possible mixing of reactive chemicals, and adjacent cargo heating requirements. The operator responsible was aware of the requirement to not store styrene monomer adjacent heated cargoes and produced a loading plan to take this into account. However, the software did not flag the plan as conflicting with guidance contained in the 2018 Styrene Monomer Safe Handling Guide regarding corner-to-corner -corner loading of heated cargoes. This represents the first point of failure, however minor, in that the software used in cargo planning was incapable of alerting the user to a situation that was against published guidelines. In the defence of both the software and Stolt, however, it should be noted that the guidance in question had only been published the previous year, and given the nature of testing requirements for such software, it is possible that any updated version had simply not yet been released. One major shortfall in the planning software was its inability to calculate the risk posed by heat transfer between cargoes. This is a highly complex calculation, dependent on aspects such as the construction of the tanks, the carriage temperature of each cargo, the specific heat capacity of each cargo, the individual levels within each of the tanks, and the duration the cargo would be aboard. 
This was outside the scope of the planning programme, and given the complexity, it was not routinely carried out by either the ship operator or the ship's master or chief officer. There was not, as far as I've been able to determine, any software solution available at Stolt that would have assisted in this task. While both the master and the chief officer were aware of the possibility of heat transfer between cargoes, their operational knowledge was limited to that included in their training syllabus, with minimal emphasis on either the potential for heat transfer between cargo tanks, including through intermediate tanks, how that potential could be calculated, or what the industry guidance on this matter was. Emphasis was instead directed towards the importance of temperature monitoring. This represents the second point of failure. There was no software solution available to any of the responsible parties that would have allowed them to check the risk posed by heat transfer, nor was there adequate training in place to fully appreciate the threat that it represented. This brings us neatly onto the third point of failure. The International Code for the Construction and Equipment of Ships Carrying Dangerous Chemicals in Bulk and Index of Dangerous Chemicals Carried in Bulk, IBC Code. Section 7.1.5 says, Means shall be provided for measuring the cargo temperature, and Section 7.1.5.4 states, When overheating or overcooling could result in a dangerous condition, an alarm system which monitors the cargo temperature shall be provided. In accordance with these sections, a temperature monitoring and alarm system was installed and in operable condition at the time of the accident. The safety management system for the Stolt Groenland specifically required daily monitoring of all cargo temperatures, including the non-heated cargoes. These policies and regulations were reinforced by the emphasis on temperature monitoring in the crew's training. Despite all of this, the crew remained resolutely unaware of the elevated temperatures in the cargo tanks until the high-level alarm activated shortly before the explosion. This indicates that no temperature alarms were set, and that the routine cargo temperature checks required by company policy were not undertaken. This neglect stemmed from the view by the crew that non-heated cargoes were benign if inhibited, compounded by the lack of previous issues when transporting inhibited styrene. Therefore, despite regular monitoring of the heated cargoes, which was carried out diligently to ensure the quality of the product on arrival, the non-heated cargoes were completely neglected, even those that were heat-sensitive. This represents the fourth, and quite frankly greatest, point of failure in this incident. Had the temperature of the styrene and other non-heated cargoes been monitored, as required by the safety management system, and alarms set to warn when the temperature approached or exceeded the 29.4 degrees Celsius, 84.92 degrees Fahrenheit, allowed by the certificate of inhibitor, then appropriate action could have been taken at an early stage in the voyage. There were, in fact, multiple different opportunities throughout the voyage to identify the hazard. The first opportunity was when the temperature of the styrene first exceeded 29.4 degrees Celsius, 84.92 degrees Fahrenheit. Based on the average air and sea temperatures in Houston during loading, 30 degrees Celsius, 86 degrees Fahrenheit, maximum air temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, the time between loading the styrene and the ship departing and the temperatures at which the heated cargoes were loaded and maintained. It is highly likely that the temperature of the styrene cargo exceeded this point before the Stolt Groenland even left the terminal in Houston. A second opportunity was missed on the 24th of September, when the temperature in 9 starboard was observed to have risen by at least 1 degree Celsius, or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, on three consecutive days between the 21st and the 24th. This behaviour is noted in the styrene monomer Safe Handling Guide, as a possible indicator of polymerization, and that additional monitoring should be undertaken. The third opportunity was also missed on the 24th, when the temperature in 9 starboard rose by 2.4 degrees Celsius, 4.3 degrees Fahrenheit, in a single day. The same passage in the safe handling guide continues on to say, a 2 to 3 degrees Celsius per day temperature increase is a typical indication of the onset of a runaway polymerization. 
the temperature needs to be monitored continuously. In spite of this clear guidance, the crew failed to take any corrective or preventative action. The fourth and fifth points of failure occurred between the 22nd and 27th of September, when cargo was discharged in Kobe and Olsen. The crew once again failed to either notice, or if they did notice, realise the significance of the elevated temperatures at this time. The temperature of the chemicals discharged ranged from 27.2 to 48.8 degrees Celsius, 81 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, although six of the non-heated cargoes ranged between 38.4 and 48.8 degrees Celsius, 101 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. These high temperatures were observed by an attendant cargo surveyor in Olsen, but as it was still within the maximum specified temperature for the cargo in question, he did not bring the matter to the attention of the chief officer aboard the Stolt Groenland. A further factor which may have contributed towards the failure of the crew to recognise the importance of these temperatures is the crew changes that took place on arrival in Olsen. With the arrival of a new chief officer and departure of the one who had been overseeing loading, passage and discharge operations up to that point, a level of operational knowledge would have been lost, and relevant parties may have been preoccupied with the processes involved in the handover. However, there is no reason why the outgoing chief officer did not recognise the high temperatures of discharged cargo in Kobe, as being worth reporting and further investigation. The sixth point of failure was not by the crew of the Stolt Groenland, but by the parent company Stolt. The company was clearly aware that the polymerisation of styrene monomer was a very real risk in light of another incident that had occurred on one of their ships just a few weeks earlier. Despite this, however, they have made no attempt to notify other ships in their fleet of this incident. Between the 3rd and 4th of August 2019, the Stolt Focus, a 37,418 deadweight ton chemical tanker, loaded 4,900 tons of styrene monomer from the same terminal in Houston as the Stolt Groenland would a few days later. The styrene was actually loaded from the same storage tank on shore. The cargo was issued with a certificate of inhibitor valid for between 60 and 90 days, with a target TBC concentration of 21 parts per million. The ship departed Houston on the 12th of August 2019 and arrived in Kobe on the 13th of September. At around this point in the voyage, the temperature in four of the styrene monomer tanks was observed to be elevated. Attempts were made to reduce the temperature, but these were unsuccessful. Following consultation with chemists on shore, the decision was made to pump seawater into the tanks to reduce their temperature and stop the reaction. This, fortunately, was successful. This incident was not reported to the Cayman Islands Registry until the 20th of November, when Stott requested guidance on how to safely dispose of the partially reacted styrene. It was eventually agreed that the styrene would be diluted with benzene enough to allow it to be discharged, and another inhibitor would be added to stabilise the cargo long enough to be incinerated ashore. The investigation requested that Stott provide additional details on this incident, given the coincidence in both the timing and loading terminals. Stolt, however, refused to do so, as they did not consider that this fell under the definition of a marine accident or marine incident, as defined in the IMO Casualty Investigation Code. In failing to report this incident to either the appropriate authorities or directly notify the crews in other vessels, Stolt deprived themselves of a valuable opportunity to prevent the explosion aboard the Stolt Groenland. The seventh point of failure concerns the certificate of inhibitor issued for the cargo. While the certificate specified the conditions of carriage and remedial actions to be taken, it was not possible for the crew to actually follow these actions. The Stolt Groenland had no onboard capability to test for either TBC or polymer concentration within the styrene. This was something only available at a shore-based lab. Even if the crew had been able to determine the onset of polymerization, there was no supply of additional inhibitor carried on board, nor was there any method of adequately mixing the inhibitor with the cargo had it been available. Options available to the crew would have been limited to attempting to reduce the temperature by cooling of the exterior of the tank, or by flooding the tank with seawater, as in the case of the Stolt Focus. So, 
what did we actually learn from all this? Well, the investigation concluded that the fire and explosion was the result of a runaway polymerization reaction of the styrene monomer carried in tank 9 starboard. The polymerization was initiated by the elevated temperature for much of the voyage, which reduced the efficacy of the inhibitor, and that the elevated temperature resulted from heat transfer from the heated cargo via intermediate tanks. The investigation highlighted a number of failings when it came to considering heat transfer risks and ensuring adequate segregation of cargoes, and that the failure of the crew to monitor cargo temperatures as required stemmed from inadequate knowledge on the risks and a sense of complacency brought about by uneventful previous voyages with the same cargo. As a result of this explosion and the subsequent investigation, a number of changes were made by both Stolt, industry and governmental bodies. Stolt tankers implemented numerous changes in policy to help prevent a repeat of the incident from occurring in the future. These include issuing notices to all fleet vessels highlighting the risks posed by inhibited cargoes, a requirement that all ships report all cargo temperatures to the ship operator ashore a minimum of three times each week, revising their procedures concerning the settings of alarms for cargoes, implementing a more rigorous process for checking stowage plans when both heated and inhibited cargoes are present, and an ongoing scheme to raise crew awareness of the risks posed by inhibited cargoes. Stolt tankers also looked into the possibility of installing the appropriate equipment for the testing of polymers aboard their ships. Unfortunately, it was not considered to be a viable prospect with current technological limitations. They have also been working with both manufacturers and industry bodies to develop practical and achievable handling instructions for inhibited cargoes. Lastly, they have started to look into the possibility of upgrading their cargo stowage program. This would enable it to calculate and predict heat transfer between cargoes and to alert operators when this may present a problem. The Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries, Republic of Korea, has implemented a ban on ship-to-ship transfers of dangerous materials in general cargo berths at Olsen. The Chemical Distribution Institute has started work on a paper outlining best practice regarding the dosing of cargo tanks, which will specifically address issues with validating the quantity of inhibitor present, and the International Chamber of Shipping amended its tanker safety guide. The 2021 version highlights the risk posed by heat transfer between cargoes and the potential inadequacy of a single tank's separation between heated and inhibited chemicals. These points of failure represent the key factors that led to the fire and explosion aboard the Stolt Kronland on the 29th of September 2019. Had they been addressed earlier, then the incident may have been avoided and 17 people would not have been injured on that day. We are fortunate that the incident did not result in any fatalities or widespread environmental damage, given the nature of the cargoes carried aboard at the time of the fire. So, what was the aftermath of the incident? Well, the Baudalian had suffered limited damage in the fire, and after it was released by investigators, it entered a shipyard in Busan, about 53 kilometers away, for repairs on the 11th of October, and was returned to normal service on the 23rd of October 2019. The current status of the Stolt Groenland is unclear. A news article from February 2021 indicated that the ship was placed in dry dock in Tongyon, uh, sorry about the pronunciation there, uh, 110 kilometres to the southwest of Olsen, and was undergoing work to remove the remains of the polymerized styrene from its cargo tanks. But there, there was an ongoing disagreement between the owner, Stolt Tankers, and the South Korean government over the repairs. In short, the government will not permit the vessel to leave port until it is repaired to a seaworthy condition, but the owner wishes to carry out those repairs in China where it would cost less. Marine tracking services do not show the ship as having moved since its final voyage to Olsen, so it is entirely possible that it remains in dry dock to this day. I have been unable to locate any official figures, either from the government, investigating bodies, or Stolt, on the final cost of this incident. However, a news article posted on the 4th of October 2019 suggested that the insurance market could see a $70 million loss as a result of the explosion, although the full article in question is locked behind a paywall 
and I'm unable to say how accurate this figure may be. One thing is certain. The final cost could have been far higher for all involved on that day had things gone just a little differently. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Point of Failure. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let me know by leaving a rating and review. Feedback would be very much appreciated and can be sent to pointoffailurepod at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for an episode or any improvements that could be made, please feel free to let me know as well. Until the next episode, please take care.